Okay, excellent. I'm excited. Hey everyone, Jeffrey Smith here with the Institute for Responsible Technology. This is Ken Roseborough. Ken, you have been writing on GMOs and organic and Monsanto and all things green and all things nasty <laughs> yeah. for, for decades, for decades. Two, two decades, two decades. Yeah. So tell everyone what your your website is so everyone knows before we dive into news that you won't hear in other places. Yes. Yeah, so uh, hello, everyone. So my website is um, non-gmoreport.com. Our publication, our magazine is the Organic and Non-GMO Report. And it looks like this. And uh, we've been publishing, I've been publishing for the last 20 years, going on celebrating our 20th anniversary. Outstanding. <laughs> Covering GMO, non-GMO, and organic. So please check out our website. And, uh, and also Acres, I did a podcast for Acres Magazine recently. So you can go to Acres USA website and, and link on a podcast where I talk about GMOs and non-GMO. And, and you've written two books? Two books, yeah. The Organic Food Handbook and Genetically Altered Foods in Your Health. Yeah, they Beautiful. were back in the 2000s, early 2000s, yeah. So. Seems like we're the same person in different bodies. Two books, <laughs> yeah, right. 20, 25 years. This is great. Yeah, we go back a long way, Jeffrey. It's Boy. true, it's true. <laughs> so today, we're going to talk about news, a roundup. See, you, what, you're, what you do is great. Every single couple of months or so, you put out uh, 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 information that only you see because you're paying attention and you're interviewing the leaders. And a lot of people who follow GMOs and organic subscribe to your magazine because if they don't, they're going to have to get the trends when the mainstream news gets it long after your subscribers get it. Right. So right. I'm I'm always excited when I look at your stuff. It feels like hot off the press before anyone knows. Uh, and uh, you just told me you just did a uh, talk. I don't know. You just heard something a couple of days ago or recently about the sales of organic and non-GMO in October. As tell us about it. Yeah. Well, I heard a presentation by Errol Schweitzer, who we both know, who is the global grocery manager at Whole Foods for many years. And he's also on the board of the Non-GMO Project. And he gave a presentation at this organic and non-GMO forum, which has an interesting name, by the way. Yeah, you're, the name of your report, <laughs> yeah. and they just stole it and didn't invite you to run it. Yeah, so anyway, um, Errol was talking about or sales of organic and non-GMO, and he, he basically said that Sales of organic and non-GMO are silver linings in the catastrophic clouds of, you know, the pandemic. And he said in October of this year, sales of organic and non-GMO were 13% higher than they were the previous October. So during this pandemic, sales of organic and non both organic and non-GMO foods have accelerated which is uh, very interesting. You know, people are still, you know, they're still committed to organic and non-GMO and they're, they're buying organic and non-GMO because they perceive them as healthier and helping them to build immunity to protect them from things like viruses. So it's, uh, it's very encouraging to see that. Yeah. We got a lot to talk about. I have a whole long list of things, but just while we're on this topic about the burgeoning sales, um, sometimes it takes a while for the pull of consumers to translate into acres planted right. Right. in terms of non-GMO organic. But I understand that that's actually also on the rise. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, organic acres are, in, are increasing. There was a, a USDA... Um, just put out an organic survey and they, they found that uh, there was a 17% increase in organic acres from 2016 to 2019. So organic acres are increasing, uh, not as fast as we would like, but um, they're definitely on the rise. 
because farmers see the opportunity in organic. Conventional farmers that grow corn and soybeans are struggling financially in their markets. They're losing their markets. And, and um, so they're looking for opportunities. So organic and non-GMO both offer them higher profit opportunities. Yeah. Beautiful. And now we're going to talk about the more of a gold standard of agriculture and what it means for health and for carbon sequestration and climate change. And we're going to also talk about um, COVID-19, glyphosate, your your microbiome. And we like to check in and see just how bad Bear is doing after buying Monsanto. But <laughs> before, before I get into that, um, I was really happy to see, well, it's an interesting mixed message. The EPA is phasing out nearly all of the BT GMO crops. Can you explain yeah. what that means and why we predicted it yeah. 20 and 25 years ago? We knew it was going to happen and now it's happening. And this is this is actually quite big news. So can you share? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the um, EPA yeah, is phasing out. Um, insects have become resistant to the BT crops. You know, as, you, as we know, nature adapts. Weeds become resistant to glyphosate. So um, the biotech companies, Monsanto's, and the other companies are encouraging farmers to plant, you know, millions of acres of these BT crops, which they did. So, and as a result, insects became resistant to it. To well, let, me, let, me explain, let me explain before uh, yeah. uh, what BT means. So... BT comes from soil bacteria called Bacillus thuringiensis, which is why we just call it BT, because it's too hard to say. And if you spray this bacteria onto plants that are infested by certain caterpillars, it will break open little holes in the walls of the guts of the caterpillars and kill them. So it's a natural insecticide. So the genetic engineers said, great, let's put this into food. <laughs> so they take the gene produce, that produces this BT toxin and put it into corn and cotton and in South America, soybeans. And now the crops are registered insecticides. And you see, organic farmers have used BT spray for years and it gets biodegrades in the sun, it washes off in the rain. Right. And so even though it's not supposed to be that harmful for humans, but we think it's very harmful for humans, it doesn't really matter with the if it's spray form because it is washed off and it biodegrades unless you happen to be an applicator because the applicators turn out to have antibody responses it has it gives allergic and immune responses to people who are exposed to it when it was sprayed aerially by plane in the pacific northwest to suppress gypsy moths the people who it was sprayed on had flu-like and allergy type type symptoms so we knew before it was put into the crops, that it creates an immune response. And we now know, since it's been put into crops, that when you put high concentrations of the BT toxin derived from these GMO corn, it can poke holes in human cells that look remarkably like the holes that it pokes in guts of, of insects to kill them. And we, I just did an, uh, I recorded an interview this morning with Tom O'Brien about GMOs, food sensitivities, and allergies and went into the whole BT toxin thing, how not only is it likely causing allergic reactions in humans, but it also makes us more sensitive if, the, if we act like mice, it can make us more sensitive to other formerly harmless foods or substances. So we were concerned about the health, but there was also the fact that if you overuse an insecticide, now you're gonna take it from me here, if you overuse an insecticide, then it will become ineffective. Yeah, nature adapts. Uh, insects will develop resistance, and then those insects that develop resistance will survive and then mate and create offspring, and then it just proliferates like that. So 90% of the corn that's grown in the U.S., 90-plus percent of the corn in the U.S. is this genetically modified BT varieties, and, and the same with cotton is also um, majority of those are BT varieties as well. So the EPA is seeing this problem. They, the scientists wanted the um, 
the biotech companies to encourage farmers to plant refuge acres of non-GMO corn to, to prevent this insect resistance from happening. But the biotech companies didn't want, <laughs> didn't encourage farmers to do that so, that much. So now they have this insect resistance problem with insects like corn rootworm, which causes, which has caused billions of dollars in damage to corn crops. And so, so now the EPA is saying, because these crops are becoming ineffective, basically, that they want to take them off the market. Um, and it's, and the biotech companies, they, they, they stack these traits. So there's some corn varieties that have as many as eight of these BT traits. You know, they've, they've just come up with more and more. And so, so now, yeah, this, there was an article in one of the farm magazines talking about this, that the EPA is proposing to remove these um, from the market. And there was a report on NPR about it, and they interviewed some uh, entomologists at Texas A&M who said farmers are very unhappy about this insect resistance problem, you know, because they're spending, you know, much more money on these on the GMO seed. They're spending twice as much money on the GMO seed as they do on the non-GMO seed. So, and they're losing money, and as a result. Some farmers are saying, hey, why are we spending so much money on this GMO seed that's not working? Let's just, I'm just going to buy non-GMO seed. So that's what a lot of farmers are starting to do, to go, to go non-GMO. Because why, you know, spend twice as much money on seed that with the traits are not even working? And with these, um, I talked to this regenerative farmer, talk about regenerative agriculture who um who is in nebraska and several i've talked to several farmers who say that following these regenerative regenerative ag practices like crop rotations uh cover crops um not much tillage and other things that they don't need the traits they don't need the gmo traits i don't you know that's common gabe brown in north dakota is like that this guy steve tucker in nebraska they're all saying we don't need these GMOs, so they're just growing non-GMO. And these farmers, these types of farmers are having a lot of influence now because they're in demand at speaking engagements and things because they're profitable and they're, they're non-GMO. And in some cases, they're going all the way to organic. So it's, it's a very encouraging trend that, that we're seeing. In it's, all, it's also happening around the world. I understand that there was a study was it in uh, Australia about um, the natural pest controls uh, saving billions of dollars in Asia and the Pacific region? Want to share? Yeah, yeah. Let's. Um, so they're using biological, you know, approaches that organic farmers would use. Um, they're not. They're not synthetic chemicals. They're not harmful, toxic insecticides. So um, yeah, that report said that. These farmers are, you know, saving billions of dollars by by using these approaches as opposed to the, the very ex expensive synthetic pesticides. Yeah, outstanding. Yeah. And if they were to go to the, you mentioned regenerative. Let's jump there. Yeah. Um, tell me, tell us about the Rodale study and carbon sequestration and what that means and what the implications are. Yeah, well, that study found that um, these regenerative methods. Like I mentioned, uh, farmers plant cover crops, so they have something in the ground all year round, and uh, diverse crop rotations, which help to break weed and insect cycles, and also rotational grazing on their land. They found, they're finding that those practices, which organic farmers also use, helps to sequester carbon. It takes carbon out of the atmosphere uh, which is causing climate change, excess CO2 in the atmosphere, it brings it down and puts it into the soil, stores it in the soil to help to uh, alleviate, mitigate climate change. So the, the Rodale study found that these practices could sequester 100% of the carbon in the atmosphere, could bring it all down. 100% right? of the annual carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, that, so that the entire country could be carbon neutral 
that every time for all the carbon that's put out through the tailpipes and through the smokestacks, there's that much carbon being driven back into the soil. Yeah. And that obviously, if we can be carbon neutral, then if we planted more of these in parts right. of the world, we could do carbon negative each year. And there's people that have described agriculture, regenerative agriculture, as the a potential, well, as a very likely candidate to completely reverse the excess carbon in the atmosphere, to completely reverse it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, you know, Tom, Tom Newmark, Tom oh, yeah. Carbon Underground. Yeah. He and he wrote the introduction to that Rodale study with, with Jeff Moyer. So, um, yeah. And there's a great film, uh, Kiss the Ground. It's on Netflix. It's all about regenerative agriculture. Beautiful. So it, so it helps to educate people about the value of regenerative agriculture um, for the global climate. It's, it's really well done. Um, Woody Harrelson is a narrator, and um, Gabe Brown is in it, and Ray Archuleta works for the USDA. He's encouraging farmers to adopt these practices around the country, and so I would encourage everyone to check out this movie. It's, it's excellent. Yeah. You know, it's not just Fringe that's focusing on, right. on regenerative. Uh, Regeneration International brought that information to the Paris talks, and several countries were interested in adopting regenerative agriculture for that purpose. What are some of the big companies that are also on board? Well, General Mills has committed to a million acres, advancing regenerative agriculture on a million acres. Um, Cargill, <laughs> you know, the food grain processing giant, yes. has committed to 10 million, advancing regenerative ag on 10 million acres. Um, and a lot of people have concerns about Cargill or big companies getting involved in regenerative ag. There's concerns about greenwashing. But I know uh, the man uh, who's in charge of Cargill's initiative, Ryan Ciroli, um, he's a great guy. I know he's committed to regenerative ag. He was part of a regenerative ag working group. He worked at Danone before working for Cargill. So I think he's the right man to lead that. So we'll see. Um, and there's other other uh, big companies. Wrangler Jeans is, is introducing a, uh, a line of jeans that have been produced using regenerative cotton practices. But... That's a little concerned about cotton because cotton uses tons of insecticides. So, and they're not, Wrangler's not saying anything about re, uh, pesticide reduction. In fact, the, the whole pesticide issue um, is a big point of debate in the regenerative ag world. There's companies like Nature's Path, which we, you and I well know, Dag Falk, who's the organic program manager, He's concerned about greenwashing. Aaron Stevens, the CEO of Nature's Path, is also concerned about greenwashing with regenerative ag practices. So, um, so pesticide reduction, I mean, the farmers that I've spoken to who are regenerative naturally reduced the, the amount of pesticides that they use. They get rid of GMOs and they stop using pesticides. In some cases, they're going organic. So um, that's the argument that as far, and that's what Tom Newmark will, will say also, that, that as farmers adopt these practices, their need for the use of the chemicals would, is, going to, is just going to fall off. So there, there, one of the strict divides in this argument, for those that want to know the inside scoop on this, yeah. is that for some people, they want to call regenerative with requirements that are organic. So they have a regenerative organic yeah. certification. So you have to be organic and on top of that, be regenerative. There's other people that say, well, look, we need to get money, much more numbers, many more acres regenerative and we can't survive as a species if we just cater to those who are willing to go organic at the same time. Let's call, let's call regenerative anything that uses these other practices, knowing that when you build the soil um, microbiota, and yeah, you have a exactly. whole new ecosystem, then the need for these chemical inputs naturally goes down. So whether you're regenerative organic or regenerative without requiring organic, both will sequester carbon. But right. as consumers, we get to drive our dollars wherever we want. 
Right. And so if we are conscious of the different gradations, we can choose our gold standard so that those who are willing to make perhaps the greater sacrifice or to be the pioneers and leaders, we can choose to support them. And I actually like the idea of regenerative becoming popular in the country, even if there's gradations, because right. I think it'll move the whole needle on agriculture as long as we who are awake keep people aware of the gradations so that those who want to can invest in the more advanced. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, regenerative right now, farmers are growing cover crops, but in some cases they're, they kill them at the end of the season with Roundup, with glyphosate, you know. So practices like that really, really need to... And make me mad. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I right. wouldn't put my money into those things. Right, right, yeah, so... Yeah, so it is a very, a very positive trend because um, soil health is like the big, along with regenerative, soil health is, is a huge trend in agriculture right now. And it's something that organic and conventional farmers can literally find common ground on, you know, the need for soil health. So it's very positive positive trend. You know. Excellent. Now, I, there's great news out of Mexico, which when I read it from your report, which I hadn't, see, I get all these articles sent to me by email every day from all around the world. But you broke me the story about Mexico's uh, new policies or their plans. Tell, Share that. Yeah, well, they want to, um, they don't want to allow production of GMO corn in Mexico. Um, Corn is, uh, Mexico is really the birthplace of diverse corn diversity. I don't know how many varieties there are down there. So they're very concerned about GMO contamination happening. And as we know, in the early 2000s, there was contamination of, of some corn varieties, some native corn varieties in Mexico in, in a remote location in Oaxaca. And um, so that was found. So... So people down there are very concerned about, about that um, happening. So, so the government wants to institute a, um, a ban on, on, on imports. On imports. And yeah. they don't grow GMOs down there legally, um, right. but they don't want any imported from the United States. Now, when NAFTA blew apart the um, trade uh, barriers, um, they started import exporting corn to Mexico below the price of Mexican production. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, 2 million farmers lost their, their jobs. The, the amount of yeah. tons, there was 200, was it 2 million metric tons, went up to 6 million metric tons or something like that. It, it tripled uh, the exports out of the United States. People were bringing in the corn. Some people were planting the corn seeds. So they were accidentally breaking the law or perhaps yeah. purposefully. And a lot of Mexicans were eating corn tortillas not with the traditional corn, which is much more nutritious than the American corn, but they were eating the BT corn, which I would say is most likely driving up certain types of diseases and disorders. And not only is the government of Mexico seeking to ban GMO imports, but they're also concerned about glyphosate. Yeah, yeah. They, they're thinking about phasing out glyphosate at the same time. Yeah. And, and specifically acknowledge glyphosate's effects on human health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, well. You know about the, uh, the effects of glyphosate on human health. And I have I have a little idea about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, Mexico and a lot of other places around the world are taking steps to to ban or you know limit the use of glyphosate, which is very encouraging. Yeah. And one thing about Mexico, there's there's some companies. It's interesting. There's some companies emerging. Um, that are that are buying this these heirloom varieties of of corn from mexico from these peasant farmers and they're selling them to like high-end restaurants in the u.s there's a company um uh, well, i forget what they're called but this begins with an m but they that's what they're doing they're they're paying these farmers you know these farmers aren't getting much money, you know, they're peasant farmers. So they're paying these farmers to supply these, these heirloom, these valuable priceless heirloom varieties of corn. 
and they're selling them in the U.S. to to restaurants and other places. So there's a a, a couple of companies that have emerged that are doing that. So that's really encouraging. And I want to turn this into an action step. Um, there was so much biological diversity in our food supply at the turn of the century in 1900. And by comparison, 100 years later, or now, some of the um, species of food have dropped in, in diversity by 90%, 95%, apples and this thing and that. And, you know, the amount of variety of, of corn has dropped, rice was, you know, 200,000 varieties of rice down to just a very small handful. But there are certain farmers that are preserving what's called heirloom, and they need a market. Because if they go out of business and they stop planting and they throw out or they eat the rest of their products, then those seeds are extinct. There are, there are thousands and thousands of varieties that are extinct now. Yeah. So as consumers, when we want to, when we're looking for, for ordering online or find the heirloom, ideally heirloom organic products and order them to pump money into that preservation, to put money into that preservation of the diversity. Um, you and I go every year, except this year, to the Baker Creek Heirloom Expo and right. see some amazing um, examples of produce. And they have tasting lines. People line up, you know, down the hall yeah. to taste the different right. types of melons or the types of tomatoes. And whereas a lot of the commercial varieties are bred for mechanical harvesting and long-term shipment, they're not bred yeah. for the taste and the beauty and the health. Those yeah. are found in the heirlooms and there's some magic in them there was. There's, it's amazing. So yeah. it's a whole world. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, yeah, Baker Creek heirloom seeds and, and here in Iowa, you're probably familiar with seed savers. Also. Oh yeah, I've spoken at their annual festival. Yeah, yeah, they're preserving 23,000 seed varieties there. Wow. And uh, also they have a heritage orchard, apples, 700 different apple varieties. So it's great. I mean, organizations like that, yeah, like you said, really need to be supported because they're providing such a valuable service to the world because seeds, you know, seeds are the basis of life and, and it's important to, to preserve those heirloom varieties. So here's the angle. Find out which heirloom flavors you like the best and then have an heirloom tasting party. Now, you got, this is, this is important. Pay attention here. This is real now. If you, we can generate in popular culture a sense of awe. You know how like wine tasters, it's like, ah, north side of the vineyard, that nice, you know, they have the whole description of it. If you take like seven tomatoes or zucchinis or whatever, and you taste them, taste the differences, and people pay attention to them and get excited about them, it changes the relationship between us and food, and particularly food varieties, and in particular, heirloom varieties. And there's people who do this. They, they treasure the look, because they're beautiful, the look yeah. and the taste of these varieties, and they have their favorites, and they collect the seeds, and they grow in some cases. They tell others. They, they blog about it, or they post about it. Let's do that. So it's not just us buying, but name the ones in your social posts that you adore and why and where you got it and where someone else can get it. And that's going to generate some economy to support this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's one that, that stands out for me is gem glass corn. Have you ever seen that? No, gem glass. It, no, tell me. It's unbelievable. I mean, there's photos of it. It's got, it's multicolored kernels and it's just beautiful blue and red and yellow and white and yeah and it's and it looks it looks like it's has gems in it wow. it's actually it was developed by uh, i think a cherokee corn breeder who um developed some uh, had some indigenous varieties you know from the from the cherokee people and, and developed this gem glass it's I would Google it, Google it, and you'll see right. how beautiful it is. Yeah, I will. And I also, I, I interviewed a person who worked with Baker Creek about heirloom varieties because I was creating a 90-day lifestyle upgrade. You can go to livehealthybewell.com 
to find that. It's to help people adopt an organic lifestyle quickly so that they don't have to spend years learning what people have learned over the years because we have all these experts. And so I interviewed someone about, okay, if you're starting a garden for the first time, what do you get? And this woman was so excited about certain varieties of tomatoes, a black tomato, a white tomato, these things and the taste. And she described different foods to plant and what their taste uh, profiles were. And, you know, there's a subculture like this. And I would yeah, like to expand yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, there's genetically engineered <laughs> canola by Cebus. Now, this is, I, how, how much time do we want to dedicate to this? <laughs> what is, appears to be blatant fraud supported by the Canadian government and we don't know yet where the European Union is going to come down on this. Right, right, yeah. You want to set it up or should I? Go ahead. Why don't you? <laughs> All right. So we know that the traditional genetic engineering is transferring genes from one species to another, but there's also gene editing where you don't need to transfer genes from another species. You can go in there and cut genes and turn things off and rearrange. And they both create massive collateral damage and whatnot. And they both require... Um, Clo or the cloning or the tissue culture growing of the GMO seed or, or cell into a crop, which creates even more uh, mutations and, and catastrophes. So um, there was a company, Cebus, that created a genetically engineered canola through gene editing. And they had a, a special type of gene editing that they said was so great and so predictable and so accurate. And yeah. They described it, they introduced it into the United States, introduced it into Canada, they were introducing it into the EU, but it turns out, and they said, it's from gene editing and you can't tell, there's no test available to determine whether it's genetically engineered or not. In fact, we're gonna call it non-GMO. They use genetic engineering to use gene editing to change it but they said, we're going to define GMOs our own way and say, because it doesn't move genes from one species to another, we're going to call it non-GMO. I mean, this company got us all very angry. <laughs> yeah. So they said it couldn't be tested. Why don't you pick it up from here? Yeah, there was a, um, a scientist, John Fagan, who was a pioneer of GMO testing. He developed the first GMO test back in the, the mid-90s. So um, he got support and uh, along with a couple of other scientists, they developed a test to detect this um, Cebus canola. So it's the first, um, the first test to detect a gene edited crop. And, and I interviewed uh, John Fagan about this and he said that this particular test is just for this canola, but the same technology, which is um, PCR, it's a um, polymerase chain reaction. It's a, a very sensitive test that's used to detect GMOs. The same technology for old GMOs to detect old GMOs can be used to detect the gene edited uh, plants, such as Cebus's canola and um, Calyx. They have this uh, soybean, high oleic soybean that's out. And, and speaking of the, yeah, the, uh, the unintended consequences, um, John uh, referred, John Fagan referred to this article that was in Nature last summer about gene editing that was done on human embryonic cells. Yeah. And they said, they described the impact of the gene editing on the, the cells as causing chromosomal mayhem. So, yeah, so, and we'll see the same thing in our foods. You know, they, it's interesting. There's, they're using the same arguments they did before that, oh, with gene editing, we're going to create more nutritious foods. We're going to help to feed the world. It's a precise technology and all this, you know, that's what they said with the old GMO technology, you know, that it's precise. But as John said, chromosomal mayhem is not precise. <laughs> so Cebus found out that the test could, could 
identify their product and that if it were genetically engineered, it would be required to go through the EU regulatory approval process. So after declaring their product as the result of their special gene edited technique for years, they then said, oh, actually, it's not. Yeah. Actually, the gene editing technique failed. The thing that we've been telling you is so precise and effective, we tried it on the cell and it didn't work, but we took that cell and we cloned it, tissue culture, into a full plant. And when it was cloned, the mutations created the change that we were looking for. And so we pretended that it was genetically engineered that was the cause of the change, but it was actually just the tissue culture portion of the genetic engineering process. Now, yeah. as, as our friends pointed out in Europe, it's still considered a genetically engineered crop because it was a cell that was genetic, gene edited, even though the gene editing didn't work, that same cell was then exposed to tissue culture. And so it should go through the approval process. But the Canadian government's also trying to say, well, well, it's, it's like there's so many pieces to this but it shows yeah. you a, le a level of lack of integrity and trying to hide and trying to be opportunist saying, oh, no, no, now that we can, you can find it, we're going to call it something else. We're going to tell you the truth that we've been hiding from you for all these years. Yeah, 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 right. And the, and the fact that they're trying to claim that it's non-GMO, you know, like Calyx with their high-alike gene-edited soybean. They were sending out, really, you know, they're processing it into oil, and they were sending out cartons of this oil to food service with non-GMO on on the box. It said non-GMO, and um, they even <laughs> Calix even sent. We have this directory, this non-GMO source book. It's a directory of suppliers of non-GMO, which is yours. Yeah, grains and ingredients. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a copy. I don't have a copy of it somewhere. Oh, here it is. Here it is right here, non-GMO source book. The only directory of non-GMO suppliers. Well, um, Calix submitted a listing. They wanted to have their products listed in our non-GMO directory. And I politely told them, no, no, we can't do that. No, we're not gonna do that. Um, and fortunately, the non-GMO project with their standard um, you know, prohibits, will not allow gene-edited products to be verified as non-GMO, and, and the same with NSF's non-GMO standard, probably the second leading non-GMO verification program. They're also not allowing gene-edited products to be. That's so important. Yeah, to draw the line like that. And, and John's John was saying, John Fagan was saying with this test, it's a, it's a big breakthrough, and it it means that, um, you know, he felt like it would help to preserve the integ integrity of non-GMO organic foods. The fact that we have it, there's a test now to detect these gene edited products as they come to market. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, John was the, he started the entire GMO detection industry. And, and I have some insider information. The biotech industry was telling Europe, there's no way you can tell the difference. Yeah. You can't tell the difference between GMOs and non-GMOs. There's no test. They told Dan Glickman, the Secretary of Agriculture, who was a big GMO cheerleader, and he traveled through Europe saying there is no test. But when John Fagan created the test, it became obvious that not only there was the test, but each of the companies that created their own GMO actually used PCR testing to verify that it was GMO. So there was a test. They knew there was a test. They lied to the Europeans and they lied to, Sec to the Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman. When Dan Glickman found out that he was lied to and was giving a lie to the Europeans, we were told he was quite angry. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is just insider insider uh, information from yeah, good, good stories, yeah. So two more things. Um, bear stocks. Bear aspirin, bear, bought Monsanto yeah. for 63 billion, I think 2 billion in, in uh, loan payments, so 63 to 65 billion. And, the, and, and they put aside, according to Monsanto, said, oh, these, 
these lawsuits about Roundup and and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, they're not going to they're going to go away. We'll set aside two hundred and seventy million dollars, and that should cover it. <laughs> uh, or two hundred sixty million. And then the first trial came, and the award was two hundred ninety million, and that was you know and now there's over one hundred twenty-five thousand people waiting for their day in court, and they're, they've settled some, and they're going to settle others, and whatnot. So what's what's going on at Bayer as a result of this? I, I I actually have a whole history testifying at their at their um, annual stockholders meeting, or sort of during COVID. But go ahead. Yeah, well, their stock price is down like forty percent or something um, because of this, and there have been calls for the for the CEO's head, you know, because of this and. Yeah, I mean, they've got how many lawsuits? There's like 100,000 lawsuits or something against them over over glyphosate causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And now they've, they've got, <laughs> there's light, there's uh, lawsuits mounting over dicamba, their other herbicide, which has been a total disaster. Uh, dicamba is known to drift. It volatizes, turns from a liquid to a gas and drifts for miles. And... It's caused damage to millions of acres of, of other crops and soybeans and um, orchards. There was a, a peach producer in Missouri, Bader, Bader Farms. They lost 30,000 trees due to dicamba drift. And he sued Bear and he won. He won um, a couple well, hundred million two, dollars. 265 million. It was right. 15 million in compensatory, but 250 million in punitive. Because yeah. when the documents were made public, it showed that Monsanto and BASF, both producing this, had not only known that their products and their introduction would cause acres to be damaged, they predicted thousands and thousands of complaints each year. They had a chart expecting how many farmers' complaints yeah. they would have in the thousands, even though in the previous years there was only 40. You know, right. So they knew the problem. They lied about it as per their SOP, and yeah. they got nailed. Yeah. Yeah, and they, and they knew that farmers – because if a farmer's growing these dicamba soybeans, his neighbor is not, the dicamba is going to drift and harm his, you know, the neighbor's um, soybeans. So his, his neighbor is going to go, well, I better grow these too. So that, that's, you know, it's, as one farmer said, it's uh, what they're doing is tantamount to ex extortion. Yeah. You know, forcing farmers to defend themselves by growing um, dicamba tolerant soybeans. So they knew that also. They did so that. With, they did that with um, with corn and soy, where where particularly corn and canola, where if there's drift from one farm to another and there's contamination, they could charge. They could pretend that the farmer who was growing non-GMO had actually pirated seeds or saved seeds or whatever. And so people didn't want to have the the um, Monsanto's lawyers come after them for possibly violation of, of uh, this has happened with Percy Schmeisser, et cetera. Right, and so right. a lot of farmers were going GMO because they didn't want, they were buying GMO seeds even though they didn't want to because they didn't want to face Monsanto's lawyers in case there was some accidental contamination, which the lawyers would then turn into intentional use of their intellectual property. Yeah, right. Yeah, and with the dicamba, because um, Bader Peaches won that lawsuit, now there's a lot of other farmers that are lining up to sue them out that. So Bayer has two major headaches. <laughs> you know, I, I predicted that they have a lot more, that the, the science is getting strong enough to bring lawsuits soon for other diseases, yeah. uh, for other cancers, but also other diseases. And the numbers of people affected by those diseases is can be a thousand times the number of people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And yeah. they're also, in some cases, deadly diseases. And so I don't think that, that they will survive if they continue to be the bad guy here. Right. All right, yeah. last thing, because I mentioned we're going to talk about this. COVID-19, pandemic, GMOs, Roundup, gut bacteria. 
you had an interview with our good friend, Dr. Michelle Perro. Talk about, and we talked about how people are eating more organic now during the pandemic. And it's not just a gut feeling, it's a gut reality that if you eat organic, your gut bacteria will be healthier and that helps your immune system, which can help you fight off, prevent or treat any viral infection in general when you have a stronger immune system. Anything you wanna share from that interview? Yeah, well, I actually didn't interview her. I just reprinted what she had written, yeah. So um, yeah, it makes sense um, that your gut microbiome, if you're eating healthier foods, you're gonna, you're gonna help to feed that. And so it'll be produce more, you know, beneficial bacteria to support your gut and your gut microbiome, and you'll be healthier as a result. And glyphosate obviously is damages the, the gut microbiome. And, um, I remember seeing a presentation last year by um, Ann Belke. She's with um, University of Washington. Uh, her husband is David Montgomery, who's written a book called Growing a Revolution about, it's all about regenerative ag. And she did a, she gave a presentation on the relationship between the gut microbiome and the soil microbiome, which was fascinating. Oh, yeah. This was just came out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the similarities between the two, you know, and, and the fact that, and, and there's a whole new um, area of research that's going to be coming out looking at how uh, healthy soils, um, nutrient-dense foods, how they, their positive impact on human health. Um, David Montgomery, he and his wife, Anne, are, are writing a book about that, about nutrient-dense foods that are produced using healthy soil, from, which is created using these regenerative ag practices. And it just goes back to, I remember going to the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania. And when you go in, there's a sign at the front that says, healthy soil, healthy plants, healthy people. And that's the formula. So it just makes sense that as soils are become healthier with, with their own living bacteria and fungi, beneficial bacteria and fungi, that they'll produce healthy foods that will support our gut microbiome as well and help us to ward off viruses and other, and other uh, diseases, yeah. You know, my, my prediction, I predict things, but then I also help make them happen. <laughs> so, it's a, so I get a little, um, I have a handicap of, it's not just a pure prediction. Like I predicted a tipping point of consumer rejection against GMOs and our institute introduced the languaging that helped make that happen. Yeah. Um, so I made a prediction some years ago, I think it was at an Acres conference, where, you know, we drive people to organic, but within the organic field, there's high nutrient dense and not nutrient dense. There's um, now there's regenerative and non-regenerative, that there's going to be more certifications that consumers can choose to drive their dollars, not only to support better, healthier agronomic practices, but healthier food and nutrient density was one that I feel like will emerge because you can actually measure nutrient density and you can know that this particular cucumber is worth you know, four cucumbers over here because it has four times the nutrient density of these four that are prepared on bad soil. And that there should be certifications or communications to consumers so that they can eat healthier and eat the best. And oftentimes it'll be the heirlooms that are gonna have those high nutrient dense if they're grown in proper soil. Right, yeah. And I think John Fagan's lab, Health Research Institute here in Iowa, I think they're going to be testing foods for nutrient density. I think that's one of the things they want to do. Yeah. Fantastic. So that's a whole new area of research that's that's going to be emerging. It'll be exciting to see that. Yeah. All right. Now, before we go, I want to invite people to protectnaturenow.com, protectnaturenow.com, and watch the trailer for a short film that we're gonna release next year. Um, we haven't talked about this much, but, and I'll let, the, I'll let the film share the information, but gene editing and how cheap it is and how easy it is and how dangerous it is, 
is an existential threat that could cause ecosystem collapse and extinction, vast extinctions. It is, it is among the most serious threats on the planet. Um, there, it's easily on the very top elite echelon of existential threats. And it's easy to understand when you realize what's at stake and what, what will happen if we don't stop it. And we have a short film on genetically engineered microbes. And that short film, which we will be released next year, we have a trailer at protectnaturenow.com. I understand you're going to post that on your Facebook page too soon, aren't you? Yes, we are, yes. <laughs> so share, the, share this interview there and post the thing underneath so people can get the one-two punch. Um, I want to thank the people who've been making comments. I've been trying to move over there and see what's been said. Yes, a, a legal framework is needed. Is needed. Um, people are talking about their experiences. Um, although I'm afraid I can't, I can't quite see all the comments. Just a second. Um, yeah, it's not coming through. I'm afraid I can't see all the comments. Um, anyway, thank you, Ken for for your amazing information for your your decades of work and uh letting us know what's going on on the inside and i look forward to our regular uh our regular uh, interviews which are scheduled semi whateverly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well thank you jeffrey it's always a pleasure talking to you good seeing you again all right thank you everyone and safe eating Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.